Good morning. Ooh, I'm loud. If you've got your Bibles, let me invite you to open with me to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 13. Gospel of Mark, chapter 13. If you're in the fours and fives class and you are going to class today, you can meet Miss Anne Marie in the back. You are dismissed at this time. For the rest of us, we're in Mark, chapter 13. We turn to, this morning, the largest block of teaching in the Gospel of Mark. So this is the the largest collection of words from Jesus in this Gospel that we have been studying since Easter of last year. In all of the Gospels, there's this moment. In Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, there's there's this moment where Jesus directs his eyes to his disciples, and he begins to give them a large collection of teachings. And in those collections of teachings, his final discourse, the aim, the intention, is to equip his followers with what following him is going to be like when he is no longer physically present with them. He's essentially preparing them for what Christianity will be what, what following Jesus will be after Jesus dies, rises again, and ascends to the Father. In this final section of teaching in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus actually begins to describe for them what life will be like for a Christian in the last days. Now, when I say the last days... I mean the final stage of God's plan for the history of the world. The days between Jesus' first coming to this world to provide salvation and Jesus' last coming, his second coming, to consummate the final act in history, to bring judgment on those who don't believe and to gather all those who believe and to remake the world where there will be no more brokenness, pain, suffering, or death any longer. So in these last days, there are many things to expect. In Mark chapter 13, Jesus includes prophecy about real historical things that were going to happen in the media of future for the disciples. And prophecy about things that were not going to take place until the end of the story. Now the trouble is deciding which one was which, and that's why a lot of people debate Mark chapter 13. In fact, this is the most debated chapter in the gospel of Mark. I'd originally planned to do it in two sermons. Now we're going to do it in four sermons, uh, partially just to give me time to figure it out uh, and figure out, not to figure it out for good, for all, but to try to figure out what I even, where I stand on some of the things that we find in Mark chapter 13. So, so I'm going to read, uh, just to, just to sort of dip our toes into the water of this chapter, I'm going to go ahead and read for us verses 1 through 13. But then we're just going to give our attention to verses 1 through 4 this morning. So Mark chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. I'll read through 13, then we'll pray for God to give us understanding. <clears throat> as he, being Jesus, as Jesus came out of the temple... One of his disciples said to him, look, teacher, what wonderful stones, what wonderful buildings 
And Jesus said to him, do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite of the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, tell us when these things will be. What will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, see that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place. But the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. And these are but the beginning of birth pains, of the birth pains. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in the synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all the nations. And when they bring you to trial and they deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it's not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child. And children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Let's pray together. Father, as we ease into this chapter, we pray, I pray, help me in this moment. Help us in this moment to see clearly what your spirit has inspired in these words, not just to understand uh, the meaning of these words, but God, to, uh, to live out the implication of these words. God, I pray that you would work the miracle in this room, in this moment, in a hundred different ways, in a thousand different ways, God. Would you use your word to stir our hearts to worship the God of the Bible? Would you, use our, would you stir our hearts to, to see our sin for what it is as the deceiver which brings destruction, God? We pray that you would help us to see Jesus, the climax of the story who has accomplished our great salvation, God. Stir our hearts to worship as we gaze into the word of God. We ask, please give us this grace. All for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. If you've been following along with us in the gospel of Mark, everything that has happened from Mark chapter 11 through chapter 12 into this moment has happened within the temple. Now, if you remember back a couple of months ago in our study of Mark 11, Jesus has told his disciples through 8, 9, and 10 in a cyclical way, three times in a row, and three times they don't get it. He's told his disciples, I am heading to a cross. My purpose on this planet, the reason I came was to die for sinners that they might have forgiveness and rise again on the third day. He's spoken clearly, I'm heading to a cross, 
It's going to happen in Jerusalem, and the people that are going to arrange my death are the leaders in the temple. Three times he tells the disciples, three times his disciples don't get it, three times he has to correct them on the fact that they don't get it. Then chapter 11 begins with Jesus entering into Jerusalem. Now, if a man was trying to avoid getting killed, the one place he wouldn't go is the temple, and that's exactly where Jesus goes. Not only does Jesus go to the temple, Jesus goes into the temple, and he is absolutely appalled by what he sees there. He sees men claiming to be religious, all the while they're making themselves rich, receiving the praise of men, and taking advantage of the worshipers who are there. He's disgusted by a sacrificial system that was built to the praise of men rather than the praise of God. Men walking around with, the, with God on their lips, but self in their hearts. And what Jesus sees enrages him as he enters into this place of power, and Jesus flips tables. Literally, physically flips tables. People are actually using the temple courtyards as a shortcut in the city because it was so massive. So they're leading their donkeys and all that kind of stuff, and they're just using the temple as a place, a means of convenience to get where they want to go faster rather than walking around. And Jesus starts trying to stop them from doing that. He's literally kicking people out. If you're trying not to get killed, you don't flip tables in the temple. He causes a commotion which would lead to the remainder of chapter 11 and the entirety of chapter 12 be uh, one confrontation after the next with the most powerful men in the temple. In fact, Jesus is confronted by all three groups of the Sanhedrin, the leadership, the religious leadership in the temple, the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the scribes all come at Jesus with accusations trying to trap Jesus to make him look foolish. And as we've seen over the last few weeks, with every accusation, Jesus ends up looking like the wisest person in the universe because he is, and the religious leaders end up looking foolish. So much so that by the end of chapter 12, you see the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees, Mark says, no one dared even ask him another question. Because the whole accusing Jesus thing and trapping Jesus thing just was not working out well for them. Jesus, at the end of chapter 12, starts going on the offensive. He begins to ask questions that they don't know how to answer. And the answer, the only answer to the, Jesus, the questions Jesus is asking, the answer is actually Jesus. <laughs> he asks questions to get them to consider that he might really be the promised Savior of the whole Bible. The one the Old Testament was pointing to. And now... Mark chapter 13, verse 1, signals a change of scenery. Jesus and his disciples leave the temple. And as they leave, one of the disciples makes what would have been a very appropriate passing comment. Verse 1. You got to love this. The disciples are walking with Jesus. They're just making small talk, you know. We're just going to make small talk with Jesus. So one of the disciples, looking around, says this. He says, look, teacher... What wonderful stones. What wonderful buildings. Now, if you weren't here for the introduction to the Jerusalem temple back in Mark 11, let me set the stage for you very quickly. The temple in Jerusalem was the place in Judaism where the presence of God was manifested for his people. This was the center of of the worship of the one true God, where Jews from all over the ancient world would pilgrimage to worship and pray and learn learn and make sacrifices. The physical construction of the temple was meant to stagger you. 
It was meant to point to the reality that this is the place where the one true God dwells, is worship, is learned about. He is different from all the other gods in this world. He is magnificent beyond comparison. And these are just historical facts about a real historical place. The circumference of the temple was nearly a mile. This was a 35-acre enclosure with columns that would take three men holding hands to wrap around each of the columns, which would encircle 35 acres. If you don't know what an acre is, that's 12, uh, uh, this encompasses 12 football fields. According to Josephus, the Jewish historian, he said, and this is the highest number that I saw, I don't know if, if he even calculated this upright, but Josephus says that the blocks of stones used in the construction were as long as 60 feet and weighed up to a million pounds. The stones used to build the Temple Mount exceeded the size of any temple in the ancient world. And here's the little group of disciples walking out in the magnitude of a structure like no other they'd ever seen in their lives. And so, of course, they say, this is crazy. I mean, look at these magnificent stones, what wonderful buildings, an understandable comment, to which Jesus responds with an incomprehensible response to them. Verse 2, do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. It is a declaration of judgment on the temple that he just spent several days teaching and arguing in. In fact, it's something Jesus alluded to earlier in Mark chapter 11. Do you remember, if you were here, I know this is like really stretching our memory, but do you remember in the beginning of Mark chapter 11, when they're going to the temple on the first time, Jesus puts into practice a live parable for them. Do you remember what it was? What was it that Jesus sees as they enter the temple? He goes up to it. Fig tree. Yeah, if you remember in Mark chapter 11, Jesus comes up to a fig tree as they're headed to the temple, a fig tree that appeared to have fruit on it. It looked like it was a tree that would bear good fruit to eat. And as Jesus approached the tree, he realizes there's actually no fruit on this tree. Jesus, strangely enough to the disciples, gets frustrated at the fruitlessness of the tree, and he curses the tree and says, may no one ever eat from you again. And the disciples are like, somebody woke up on the wrong side of the bed this morning. <laughs> Jesus, I mean, we can get you some food. Maybe, <laughs> I'm sure there's some figs in the market or something. Jesus declares judgment on it, and then the story just moves on, and they go to the temple. Now, in the temple, Jesus flips tables and says, says you have made my house a den of robbers when it's supposed to be a house of prayer. They leave the temple, and guess what they see again? They see, what was it? Fig tree. And what had happened to the fig tree? It was dead. Mark says, withered to the roots. Now, what are we, were we supposed to take from that in Mark 11? Well, when Jesus just declares judgment upon something, it's going to happen. At the word, no one's ever going to eat from you again. They come back by that fig tree, and ain't nobody ever going to eat from that fig tree again. All of it was designed to be a living parable for what was going to happen in the temple. Here's Jesus leaving the temple, and what's he say? Not one stone 
will be left upon another that will not be thrown down. Now, if the temple story is consistent with the fig tree story, then something big is going to happen to the temple. Now, it's not the first time in the story of the Bible where a prophet or where somebody has spoke judgment on the temple because man is so quick to make things about himself more than the glory of the Lord. Even in the creation of the temple, in 1 Kings chapter 9, the Lord speaks to Israel, 1 Kings 9, 6, and he says, if you turn aside from me, if you turn aside from following me, you or your children, and you don't keep the commandments and my statutes I've set before you, but you go and serve other gods and worship them, I will cut off Israel from the land that I've given them, and the house I've consecrated for myself, I will cast out of my sight. Israel will become a proverb and a byword among all the peoples, and this house will become a heap of ruins. Later in Jeremiah The prophet of Jeremiah in chapter 22, verse 5 says, If you will not obey these words, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that this house shall become a desolation. Perhaps the most moving picture comes from the book of Ezekiel. People of God have stopped worshiping the one true God, worshiping themselves, worshiping false gods. And Ezekiel catches a vision of God Almighty, the presence of God, standing up from the mercy seat inside the temple where the presence of God was supposed to be and walking out the door, getting into a chariot and riding off into the distance. Now the vision was a symbol, it was a, the vision was to tell him that God's presence was departing from the place because people had forsaken God. Ezekiel chapter 10 verse 18, the glory of the Lord went out from the threshold of the house and stood over the cherubim. The cherubim lifted up their wings and mounted up from the earth before my eyes as they went out with the wheels beside them. And they stood at the entrance of the east gate of the house of the Lord and the glory of God of Israel was over them. Chapter 11 of Ezekiel, it says, Then the cherubim lifted up their wings, the wheels beside them, the glory of God's Israel was over them, and the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood on the mountain that is on the east side of the city. Now, one of the interesting things about the book of Ezekiel, which we don't have time to get in, is Ezekiel's wife dies, and God tells Ezekiel not to mourn the death of his wife as a symbol to the people that the presence of God's been taken from them, and they don't care. They're not mourning that the God they claim to worship has removed his presence from their midst. They should be mourning as if they've lost a spouse, yet they don't care. This rejection of God in Israel's history, after it, the temple was destroyed, later to be rebuilt, and now again, Israel is rejecting God, but this time... They're rejecting God specifically by rejecting Jesus, the Son of God. And Jesus actually leaves the temple in the same way the presence of God left the temple in Ezekiel's vision. If you're real familiar with Ezekiel, perhaps the the Jewish readers would have even recognized this, that Jesus exits the temple and heads to the Mount of Olives. That's where they're sitting to observing, looking back at the temple on the Mount of Olives. To get to the Mount of Olives, they would have exited the east side of the city to sit on the mountain and look back at the temple. An avid Old Testament reader might have 
might have seen this as familiar with Ezekiel eleven twenty three. The glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood on the mountain that's on the east side of the city. The glory of the Lord has once again left the building in the person of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Because the people worshipped themselves rather than the God who was literally standing face to face with them. And once again, destruction is declared on the temple and really on the entire city. It's a big statement. The disciples are a little floored by it. They get to the Mount of Olives. They're looking back and they're thinking over, they're mulling over what Jesus just said. And verse 4 tells us that they approach Jesus with a question. Verse 4 says, tell us, when will these things be? What will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? Now, the disciples recognize that the destruction of the temple would have been a massive deal. In fact, they probably assumed that the destruction of the temple also meant the end of the world as they know it. Surely the destruction of the temple would mean the inauguration of the last day where God comes to settle the score. This is a big deal. And, and with all of that being said, what question do the disciples ask? What's the question that they ask? When? Right? With all the things they could ask, they want to know, when's this going to happen, Jesus? When is this going to happen? They get caught up on what so many of you get caught up when it comes to talking about the last times, the last days. When is this going to happen? But notice, they don't ask why. They don't ask, what shall we be doing in the meantime? What good is the wind going to do them if they don't know what to do in the meantime? Or the why this is significant. In fact, Jesus doesn't answer the when in this text to many of your frustrations, right? He doesn't ask, he doesn't answer the when, he answers the what they should be doing, and that's what we're gonna talk about last week. But this week, I wanna ask the question why? Why is the destruction of the temple such a big deal? And why does the Gospel of Mark spend so much time? leading us through the story to get to this moment and then showing us that the temple's over, even in Jesus' dying breath. What happens to the veil in the temple that separates the presence of God from the presence of man when Jesus breathes his last breath? It rips from top to bottom, right? Now, do you remember all of the Gospel of Mark is one big inclusio, and it's one big sandwich. It starts in Mark chapter 1, where the heavens themselves, schizo, that's the Greek word, tears open, and a voice declares, behold, uh, uh, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. God's voice says, this is my son. At the end of the Gospel of Mark, this time, something else schizos, only two times it happens in the whole Bible, or not the whole Bible, the whole Gospel of Mark. This time, it's the veil that tears, and a different voice declares. It's a Roman soldier says, surely this is the Son of God. The, the story is everything in the middle of that sandwich is meant to convince you this is the Son of God. Listen to him, 
right? This is the words that come from the moment of transfiguration. The glory cloud goes away. Jesus is standing there. This is the son. Listen to him. So why, so, so, so why the emphasis on what's happening in the temple to be destroyed? Now, I'm going to give you three truths. Three reasons this is significant. I'm going to give you a historical reason, a more theological reason, and then an eschatological reason or an end times reason. Okay? Truth number one. If you're a note taker, the temple's destruction points to the reliability of God's word. Now, here's the thing about Jesus' words. Not a stone will be left on another. Jesus' prophecy here is not something that we're still waiting for. This was not hypothetical. It was not allegorical. Jesus literally promises the literal physical buildings of the temple was going to be so totally destroyed that one stone wouldn't remain on top of another. And in the year A.D. 70, within the disciples' lifetime, that's exactly what happens. Forty years later, Julius Caesar ordered that the entire Temple Mount and the city be destroyed. This is an actual historical event just 40 years after Jesus says, hey, this is what's going to happen. And then he, we, we see in, in history, there's a guy by the name of Josephus that I referenced earlier. He's a historian in the first century. Listen to how he, he describes what happened to the temple. He says, Caesar ordered the whole city and the temple to be raised to the ground All the rest of the wall encompassing the city was so completely leveled to the ground as to leave future visitors to the spot. No ground for believing that it had ever been inhabited. That's Josephus saying this is what took place to those big buildings and massive stones. This this book, this Christianity, this is not a fairy tale. This is not mythology. This this contains a publicly proclaimed prophecy by the person of Jesus about the total destruction of a city. And here is the historian of the age saying that's exactly what happened. Now, did Rome's Caesar in AD 70 say, I'm going to go fulfill Jesus' promise today? No. Was he a follower of the one true God? No. But did he unintentionally fulfill exactly what God said? Yes. God is sovereign over every detail in the world, including historical, geopolitical movements that seem absolutely uncontrollable. There's no event in history that God cannot and does not use for his glory and for the good of those who've trusted him. Proverbs 21 says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of a Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. If nothing else, this prophecy of Jesus and its subsequent fulfillment should give you confidence this morning, Christian. A confidence that God's word is trustworthy. When he says it's going to happen, it's going to happen. And just because there are promises he's made to us that we have yet to experience, it does not mean that those promises have been broken or will be broken. They're just not happening the time we want it to happen. Peter, who was sitting there with Jesus when he made that statement, would later write in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 8, Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, 
not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. There are promises that God has made to us, much like Jesus' prophecy about the temple, that sometimes we don't feel like they'll ever come true. Romans chapter 8, 28, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Jesus made this prophecy in AD 33. The fulfillment happened in AD 70. What if in AD 69, you decided to stop following Jesus because he was wrong about that one thing? Do not doubt the promises of God simply because we can't see their fulfillment in the time we want it fulfilled. Listen, God is bigger than you. Is that the most profound thing that we've said all morning? (laughs) Right? God is bigger than you. And he orchestrates the invasions of entire countries in accordance with one sentence uttered by the Son of God. If nothing else, let this fulfilled prophecy renew in you a resolve to trust what God says. There's no politician, government, dictator, army, cell in the human body that operates in total freedom from the Almighty. God is always accomplishing a plan bigger than you can see. Truth number one, the temple's destruction points to the reliability of God's word. But that's not all. Truth number two. Truth number two. You guys hanging on? We good? We're tracking? All right. Truth number two. The temple's destruction points to a new temple through a final sacrifice. So, so let, me, let me provide a recap for you if you're unfamiliar with the Bible story. I mean, everything that was written pre-Jesus was pointing to Jesus. Everything Old Testament points to a greater fulfillment. Every structure, character, law, religious system in the Old Testament Judaism points beyond itself like a shadow. The physical temple in Jerusalem was magnificent, but was only a shadow of something else to come. It was the place where God dwelt. It pointed to the uniqueness of the one true God. Its system of sacrifices showed the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man and the fact that that was a big problem for man and God to dwell in harmony every day. Priests made blood sacrifices to God to symbolize the gruesomeness of sin and the blood penalty it deserved. I had an Old Testament professor uh, in college. I did a class on Leviticus, and he made us read all of Leviticus uh, in one week, I remember. And he came in, on, and I've told some of y'all this before, but he came in, he sat on the table, and, and it was supposed to be a three-hour class, and he just opens Leviticus, and he just starts reading Leviticus just over and over. I mean, it's just like the blood of this and the blood of this and the goats and the entrails and the bowels and the burning and the blood. And he's just reading, and we're all like, we literally just read this for like a week. <laughs> And, and he looks up, and he says, you tired of this? After like 10 minutes. And we're like, I mean, yeah. <laughs> and with tears in his eyes, he said, he said, do you see? He says, can you imagine walking around as an Israelite and smelling the carcasses of animals and seeing the smoke and seeing the blood pouring out of the temple because of all the sacrifices? He said, do you see what your sin deserves? And what your Savior took for you. Everything about the Old Testament was pointing to something greater. 
And when Jesus died on the cross, he fulfilled the system that the temple foreshadowed. He became the perfect sacrifice who paid the blood penalty. He, he became a priest better than any other priest who had no sin, but who took all our sin, guilt, and shame and suffering on himself, on our behalf. Jesus not only makes a way for us to be forgiven, but then he cleanses us so that we, his people, God's people, might now function as a new temple. When people wanted to know the one true God in the Old Testament, they went to the the physical structure where his glory was manifested. When people want to know the one true God now, they no longer have to go to a physical structure. They go to and inquire of the people of God in whom God dwells. They watch how the church interacts with one another and the world. When people want to know God, how to reconcile to God, they can go to the people who have been reconciled to the God, and they can learn about the God whom they know personally. We, the church, the New Testament says, we serve the purpose of that old temple that Jesus made possible by the blood of a perfect sacrifice. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. You, church, we, church, we're, we're not a man-made institution with a building and a steeple and a program that we do once a week for you to come and sit and be entertained by a charismatic dude talking about some stuff. That's not what we are. We, as a people, are like living stones built together that house the presence of the Lord for the world to meet the one true God. They look at our lives and what the gospel's done in our lives, and they say, surely their God must be real. 1 Peter 2, 19, Peter, having learned all these lessons the hard way in lots of ways, he writes, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous lights. Once you were not a people... But now you're God's people. Once you'd not received mercy, but now you've received mercy. So what do you do with that? Verse 11 says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles, among the nations, honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, what are they going to see? That they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. This is why the temple curtain was torn in two when Jesus breathed his last. This is why there's no stone left on the temple because it's not needed anymore. No more sacrifices are to be made. No more priests are to be appointed that need to intercede for you to go to God. No more temples need to be built. Jesus, the perfect sacrifice, fulfilled the role of perfect priest, and now the church is his temple for the whole world to be invited into the presence of God. So let me, let me just pause right there and ask you a question. What does the world think about your God by watching your life? When they looked at the temple, they were to think, God is bigger than anything I could imagine. 
Is that what people think when they look at your life? If someone's exposure to our God and our church, St. Rose Community Church, if someone's exposure to St. Rose Community Church was only through observing your life, would they get an accurate picture of the glory of the good news of Jesus? Would they see a majestic temple dressed in holiness? Or would they see at best a cleaned up version of the rest of the world? The temple's destruction pointed to a new temple through a final sacrifice. You and me are that temple. I, I, I think there's one more element that this, in this prophecy that we should see and we're going to see a lot more as we progress through Mark chapter 13. So, so the disciples recognize this is big. Temple's destruction is big. It's cataclysmic. As we discussed, the temple, this massive, I mean, this man-made structure, corrupted as it was over time, is about to be brought to nothing. And the disciples thought that this moment must have been tied to the end times the last day, when it's all said and done, the end of the world, and they're right in some ways, and they're wrong in some ways. It wasn't the time marker to start all the, 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 the final last day where Jesus comes and judges the world, but it was a foreshadow to a future event that would make the destruction of the temple look like a kid squashing a sandcastle. There was a bigger judgment that was coming that Jesus transitions to talk about later in Mark 13. So here's a little prequel to a few weeks from now. Mark 13, 24, Jesus says, in those days, this, he's looking past the temple now. In those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will be falling from heaven, the powers in the heavens will be shaken, and they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he'll send out the angels to gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. Truth number three. The temple's destruction points to a final destruction. One day, all the things that humans thought were most impressive will come to an end. All our large stones, tall buildings, all our structures, all our ideologies that we built to serve ourselves all of them will come toppling over. There will be no safe space to stand but the solid rock of Christ. Amen. The religious elite in the temple built their lives on the wrong foundation. They constructed meaning and value for their lives from things they made up, and it was going to come crashing down, literally and physically. But it was just a picture of what's going to happen to this entire World. Let me ask you a question. What structures have you built? What impressive pedigrees, what life goals, human innovation, jobs, 
stages of life where you think the grass is greener? What have you built your life on? Priorities, values, accomplishments that you spend most time thinking about. What is it that you're building your life upon that will still be standing after that day? Versus what will be toppled by the judgment of God. Paul speaks about this very clearly. You need, you need to listen to this passage. I, I, when I read this passage, I was moved in myself to think about my own life. This is how Paul thinks about his life and wants you to think about your life. This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3. He says, according to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation. Someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. And if anyone builds on the foundation with gold or silver or precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he'll receive a reward. If anyone's work is burnt up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Now, see the connection, verse 16. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? What are you building your life on that will still be standing when the true judgment over the world sweeps across this world? Three truths we've looked at. The temple's destruction points to the reliability of God's word. It points to a new temple through a final sacrifice. And it points to a final destruction to come. Now, let me close with a few takeaways. Takeaway number one. From truth number one, simple, believe the word of the Lord. God's word said the temple would be destroyed, and it was destroyed. God's word says that the sin that you are chasing will be destructive, and it will be destructive. It will have consequences you've never anticipated. Don't doubt it. Believe the word of the Lord. Number two, be the temple. Take seriously your purpose as a representative of the glory of God. You, it's, a, it's a great thing that individualistic, independent Americans love to say, well, I don't care what people think. We wear it as a badge of honor as if we somehow arrived because we don't care what people think. You should care what people think because you should care what other people think about the God that you say that you worship. May your holiness actually lead others to pursue a holy God rather than to dismiss him as powerless in your life. Takeaway number three. Build your life to survive the final destruction. 
Do a hard look at things that you find most important and ask yourself, what will matter on the last day? And it all starts with a return to what is the real foundation of it all. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone, for the glory of God alone. There's no other way to live that brings greater joy. Let's pray. Let's worship this God. Lord, we pray that you would help us to live for the glory of Christ and to see it as the most valuable, most precious, most life-giving thing in the world. We see in your word, as we'll see next week, people throughout the history of the world have sacrificed so much because of the treasure of the gospel that they found in the field and sold everything else for. We pray, God, that you would help us to value Jesus, help us to be the temple, help us to listen to your word, and help us to build our lives on things that will live on into eternity. Help us, God. We can't do this on our own. That's why you've gifted us the spirit. So if we pray, work a thousand miracles in our hearts as we respond in worship now. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.